Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and unearthing those stories that have been consigned to the dustbin of history. This podcast is all about bringing to life Britain's military past, revisiting stories long forgotten, and hopefully introducing a new generation of people to their country's great history. Today's episode is a little bit different to previous ones. It's the audio from a video that I've got out on my YouTube channel. It's about the most brilliant cavalry charge of the Peninsula War. Have a listen and see if you agree. For those of you who have already followed my Peninsula War season, clips of this may sound familiar because I've, I've edited together some nice clips from different episodes to tell the story of this battle once more. Excuse that noise, there's a plane going over and I've got hardy dars, the big South African birds, in my garden making a racket. Talking of rackets, how's that for a segue? You might notice some sound effects in this podcast that don't make a lot of sense because I've taken it straight from the video. So don't be confused if you hear a little bit of a carry-on film or some shooting going on in the background and you're not quite sure where they're coming from. That's just because it's the audio lifted from the video. The Peninsula War in Spain and Portugal, it's been well covered on this show. Well, today I wanted to revisit a cavalry action that the great historian Sir Charles O'Man called the most brilliant exploit of the British cavalry during the whole six years of the war. And if anybody should know, let's be fair, it's him. If you disagree, then let me know in the comments. I always like to hear other people's opinions. Perhaps you think the most brilliant charge was the heavies at Salamanca. Or maybe the King's German Legion at Garcia Hernandez. Well, Oman thought it was neither of those, though they are both spectacular. No, today we're revisiting the Battle of Sahagun or Sagun. As in quarters we lay, which you quickly shall hear. Now, have a listen to this contemporary song to get you in the mood. Brilliant, isn't it? Come saddle your horses, for we must ride soon. When the Peninsula medals were distributed nearly 40 years after the event, a special clasp was given for the engagement at Sagun. Though many combats in which a much larger number of men were engaged received no such award. I think that gives you a, a hint as to how important people felt it was. Now stay tuned until the end of the video to hear historian Marcus Cribbs thoughts on the battle and also the performance of the British cavalry in the Peninsula in general. Marcus is a friend of the show and always has good points to make. The Battle of Sahagun or Sagun was fought on the 21st of December 1808 as part of Sir John Moore's campaign in Spain during that awful winter of 1808 and early 1809. The campaign would ultimately end in the inconclusive Battle of Karuna, both sides claiming it to be a victory, and it ended in a Dunkirk-style evacuation of the exhausted British army. Our story begins with an overstretched and bitterly cold British expeditionary force playing cat and mouse with a large French army. Will they attack? Will the Redcoats need to retreat in a hurry? Or will we soon be back on the offensive? Let's find out. This is a clip from my podcast on Sir John Moore that covers the Battle of Sagoon in detail. With his 
Army combined and ready for action, Moore was disappointed when Marshal Sioux did not immediately advance towards him. Therefore, Moore quickly ordered Lieutenant General Lord Paget and his cavalry to attack the enemy at a place called Sahagoon. It was a large town on the banks of the Saya River. The French 8th Dragoons and the 1st Provisional Chasseur à Chevelle were posted at a convent on the edge of the town, and Paget's plan was to cut them off and annihilate them. Captain Alexander Gordon of the 15th Hussars was one of Paget's dashing young officers. In his dark blue dolman jacket with its matching pelisse and intricate silver lace, he cut an impressive figure. So far he'd spent the campaign focused on his love life. While quartered in the village of Villa Grexima, close to Mayorga, he had become devoted to the beautiful Maria, the daughter of the owner of his billet. He'd wooed her with his impressive stock of Spanish compliments and flattering speeches and promised to take her in England. Typical cavalry officer, some might say. But on the morning of Sunday the 18th of December, as he escorted her to church, the service was interrupted by the bugles sounding boots and saddles. He rushed to grab his things and prepare his horse, hurriedly saying goodbye to a woman he would never see again. Gordon's regiment was on the move, first to Villa Pando and then Mayorga, before receiving orders to commence a secretive night march towards Sahagun. The roads were covered in sheets of ice, the horsemen struggling to control their mounts. Gordon recalled, Our march was disagreeable and even dangerous, owing to the slippery state of the roads. There was seldom an interval of many minutes without two or three horses falling, but fortunately a few of their riders were hurt by these falls. The snow was drifted in many places to a considerable depth, and the frost was extremely keen. Just after dawn on the 21st, the British approached Sahagoon. On the main road into town, they surrounded the French main guard, but in the confusion, a single enemy trooper managed to escape and raise the alarm. The sound of trumpets now began to wake the town, alerting the French to the British presence. Paget quickly split his force, ordering the Tenfazars, or the Tenflight Dragoons, whatever you want to call them, to follow the Saya River, while he led the 15 Fazars to the right to cut the enemy off. As the 15th reached the suburbs, they found the two French cavalry regiments forming up in the snow-covered fields. The French immediately opened fire with their carbines, the crack of musketry shattering the early morning calm. But the ragged volley caused few casualties, and Paget, deciding not to wait for the 10th Hussars, and seeing the French changing formation, flung his heavily outnumbered men into the charge. Gordon was in the thick of the action. To really get a sense of the battle, I'm going to read a lengthy but fascinating extract from Gordon's excellent book. As soon as the enemy's order of battle was formed, they cheered in a very gallant manner and immediately began firing. The 15th then halted, wheeled into line, huzzahed and advanced. The interval betwixt us was perhaps 400 yards, but it was so quickly passed that they had only time to fire a few shots before we came upon them, shouting, Emsdorf and victory! The shock was terrible. Horses and men were overthrown, and a shriek of terror intermixed with oaths, groans, and prayers for mercy issued from the whole extent of their front. Our men, although surprised at the depth of the ranks, pressed forward until they had cut their way right through the column. In many places, the bodies of the fallen had formed a complete mound of men and horses. But very few of our people were hurt. Colonel Grant, who led the right centre squadron, and the adjutant who attended him were amongst the foremost who penetrated the enemy's mass. They were both wounded, the former slightly on the forehead, 
the latter severely in the face. It is probable neither of them would have been hurt if our fur caps had been hooped with iron like those of the French chasseurs, instead of being stiffened with pasteboard. It was allowed by everyone who witnessed the advance of the 15th that more correct movements, both in column and in line, were never performed to review. Every interval was accurately kept and the dressing admirably preserved. The attack was made just before daybreak when our hands were so benumbed with intense cold that we could scarcely feel the reins or hold our swords. The French were well posted, having a ditch in their front, which they expected to check the impetus of our charge. In this, however, they were deceived. After the horses had begun to gallop, indeed the word of command, left squadron to support, was passed from the centre, but so indistinctly that Major Leach did not feel authorised to act upon it. And at that moment we were so near the enemy that it would have been difficult to restrain either the men or the horses. My post being on the left of the line, I found nothing opposed to my troop and therefore ordered, left shoulders forward, with the intention of taking the French column in the flank. But when we reached the ground they had occupied, we found them broken and flying in all directions and so intermixed with our hussars that, in the uncertain twilight of a misty morning, it was difficult to distinguish friend from foe. Notwithstanding this, there was a smart firing of pistols, and our lads were making good use of their sabres. Upon reaching the spot where the French column had stood, I observed an officer withdrawn from the melee. I followed, and having overtaken him, was in the act of making a cut at him, which must have cleft the skull, when I thought I distinguished the features of Lieutenant Hancock's. And, as I then remarked, he wore a black fur cap and a cloak, which, in the dim light of the morning, looked like blue. I was confirmed in the idea that he belonged to our regiment. Under this impression, although his conduct in quitting the field at such a period struck me as very extraordinary, I sloped my sword, and merely exclaiming, What, Hancocks? Is it you? I took you for a Frenchman. I turned my horse and galloped back to the scene of the action. The shock I felt from the idea that I'd been on the point of destroying a brother officer instead of an enemy deprived me of all inclination to use my sword except in defence of my own life. Many mistakes of the same kind must have occurred in the confusion after the charge. One of our men told me that I had a narrow escape myself, for that during the melee he had his sword raised to cut me down, but luckily recognised his officer in time to withhold the stroke. At this time I witnessed an occurrence which afforded a good deal of amusement to those who were near the place. Hearing the report of a pistol close behind me, I looked around and saw one of the 15th fall. I concluded that the man was killed, but was quickly undeceived by a burst of laughter from his comrades, who exclaimed that the awkward fellow had shot his own horse, and many good jokes passed at his expense. The melee lasted about 10 minutes, the enemy always endeavouring to gain the carry-on road. The appearance of their heavy dragoons was extremely material and imposing. They wore brass helmets of the ancient Roman form and the long black horsehair streaming from their crests as they galloped had a very fine effect. Having rode together nearly a mile, pell-mell, cutting and slashing each other, it appeared to me indispensable that order should be re-established as the men were quite wild and the horses almost blown. Therefore, Seeing no superior officer near, I pressed through the throng until I overtook and halted those who were farthest advanced in pursuit. As soon as I accomplished 
accomplished this object, the bugles sounded the rally. Whilst we were reforming our squadrons, the enemy also rallied and continued their flight by different routes. Our left and left centre squadrons were detached in pursuit of the chasseurs à Chavelle, who took the road to Carrion. The other two squadrons followed the dragoons, who retired in the direction of Saldana. That really is a wonderful description, isn't it? The combat was won, the French routed and destroyed. But it wasn't to be the beginning of a string of glorious Allied victories. Instead, Moore was forced to continue his withdrawal. Early on in our Peninsular War season here on the show, I was joined by the brilliant Marcus Cribb to hear his thoughts on the British cavalry during the Peninsula. I wanted to include a clip of his assessment here to give some background to the battle and the reasons that he believed Sagoon was such a stunning success. It's really hard with, uh, with like really broad uh, statements because probably overall the, the British Army was slightly better than the French. Um, uh, but the cavalry suffered a lot less from conscription than the French Army. And uh, certainly something the French normally have, apart from, uh, even at Sahagun, they were outnumbered uh, two to one, is that the French cavalry corps is much, much bigger up until about 1812 with the losing all their horses in, in the uh, Russian campaign. So they tend to be pretty ma well matched. Um, again, it's a, it's a broad statement. Where the French cavalry tend to be better is they tend to have better officers. One of the... Um, one of the kind of popular statements about the British cavalry at the time is that they would gallop at everything and then gallop back again. They had this really um, big reputation for overreaching. So they would go and do an attack and then they would just keep going and keep going, especially famously at Waterloo where the, the French um, completely exposed that. Um, where at Sahagun is the difference is they've got um, Paget, handsome Henry Uxbridge, as he later is. Um, and He's a fantastic cavalry commander. He really knows how to use them and also use the ground. A bit like Wellington knows how to use a reverse slope or go on the attack at the right time. Uxbridge knows how to use the terrain, get around behind the French and attack them at the, uh, the opportune moments. And Sahagun, I think he catches the French so much that they're actually stationary and they try to defend themselves um, from a from a stationary position against sweeping in uh, hussars, which is really difficult to do. Yeah, I believe um, I believe so that was never a successful tactic during the Napoleonic era was to stand still while being charged. But if you're cavalry yourself, correct? Yeah, that's it. It's all about kinetic energy. It's about the kind of two forces of uh, horse and man coming together, quick sweeps of the swords and and passing and then wheeling round. So to be stationary, they've got the entire advantage. I guess it's. Um, like sailing they've got the wind on their side and they're coming in so uh that's why Sahagun worked really well um the, the cavalry they they start off really quite strong um they're coming out of a lot of period of training and they've gone through a series of uh, reforms uh, which we'll probably come on to um but yeah they, they're, they're very good um they, they're very competent uh, but they are suffering from what the entire army is suffering from that is under bad leadership they're only as good as their um, leaders and there were quite a few occasions where um, they Uxbridge uh, gets replaced by um, Stuart General Stuart and uh, he's just he's just not fantastic and there were there are times where he he fails to make the charge at the right time and I think it was during the battle of uh, the second battle of Porto his his cavalrymen are just going sir you're just making the wrong decisions here and you need to think about what you're doing. You're about to send, you know, a, a squadron of men against a, a regiment. We're just all going to get massacred. 
And he's going, yeah, excellent. Just just keep going, just keep following. And there's, there's questions of his orders. So um, they, they really do suffer under their leadership. And uh, Uxbridge, who's there during the Corona campaign, is fantastic. Uh, he ends up going back. And I uh, quite like the link. He goes back mostly because um, he elopes um, with Wellington's wife. Oh, sorry, Wellington's husband, Wellington's brother's wife, uh, sister. So it creates a huge, uh, it creates a huge scandal uh, in uh, in Britain as well. I've never been so shocked and humiliated in my life. So there you have it, guys. I hope that you found that interesting. If there are any other battles that you want me to take a deep dive into or any first-hand accounts that you'd like to hear me read aloud, then please comment below or drop me an email. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care and don't forget to sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do so, you'll get a copy of my free ebook on the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. All right, guys, see you soon.